Hello and welcome to another Brit Rock edition of Back to Britpop. It's me, Chris. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Tony Wright from Terrorvision. Tony goes into great detail about the band's formative years, his influences growing up as a kid, and life in Yorkshire. I'll be back after the interview to talk about all the ways you can support the podcast. But without further ado, here's Tony. Welcome to the podcast, Tony. How are you? I'm good, thank you very much. How are you? Not bad. I'm all right, because we've asked you that already. (laughs) (laughs) How are you coping with it all? Uh, Ups and downs, do you know what I mean? Sometimes I'm uh, absolutely fine. Other times, like anybody else, it's like I don't get out of bed for a few days because it's just like, why bother? Can't be asked. Yeah. Um, But I think it's because we've all had to be a bit um, stoic for the last year. We've had to keep our stiff upper lip. And I'm hoping, touch wood, I'm thinking that, you know, whatever the date is today, February 19th, whatever it is, I'm hoping that we can actually see a way out of it. And, you know, the vaccine being rolled out to saying everyone everyone over 40 by, the, what, end of April, is it? End of March, I think. Yeah, so, yeah. So that means there can't be that many more people to, uh, you know, it means that I'm hoping come August, September, maybe, you can go to a pub you can go to a gig and you'll be able to stand in a room knowing that if everyone in there has been vaccinated mm. and you've been vaccinated and um i can't see why why it can't happen if if that's the case mm. you know if you if you can't catch it because you're vaccinated and you can't you know you can still carry it around can't you, you can pick it up off the door handle and carry it to another door handle but if everyone touching them door handles has been vaccinated yeah i think I think I'm well. Touch what I'm telling myself that. Otherwise, I, I don't know what I'd be telling myself. Yeah, uh, it looks like it's going in the right direction, which is the main thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the one thing that they have got right, it's quite an important one, isn't it? Hmm. You know, because like, like with Brexit and everything like that, I just think you know, obviously the music industry, especially crew and bus companies and merchandise companies, it's not just touring crew and bands. That are affected, you know, with this thing where they can't go and do a tour of EU countries because, well, you know, they can't go do a tour of EU countries for more than. Well, they said they could do ninety days, didn't they? And then the government said, no, no, we don't want ninety days. And as if, as if any European band is going to be a tour the UK for longer than what a week? Yeah, yeah. You know, Abba, Abba, the biggest band in the world ever from Sweden. Even they'd struggle to get like 30 days touring around Britain, do you know what I mean? Because we're a tiny little country. But Europe's massive, the EU's massive, you know, so it's a shot in the foot. So the Brexit, getting the, the vaccine out of Brexit is a bit like standing in something nasty on the pavement and like being peeved about it, but then someone saying, oh, has anyone got any uh, dog crap I can borrow? <laughs> yeah, I've got a load of it here. Yeah, let's. Uh, that's that's the you know it's um, we've stood in the crap, but it's it's we actually need some. Otherwise, it's just you're walking around with crap on your shoes. Well, looking back then, Tony, you know better days or even uh, you know times when it was a little bit simpler, so to speak. What was it like growing up uh, for you in terms of musical influences and and sort of the Yorkshire scene? Um, well, growing up. I suppose my first experience of, of sort of music would be through my granddad, I suppose. My granddad 
played piano and banjolele and organ and he were he, he used to say if you can play an instrument you'll never have to buy a pint <laughs> and so to me that's what I've always carried with me rather than I want to be um living in the Hollywood Hills and not having to talk to people who earn less than a certain amount you know what I mean yeah it's and that's why the good times and the bad times are just times and if you play music if you write music if you sing songs and that's who you are so back in the early days, it would have been him singing songs like, I don't know, Daisy Daisy on your bike for two and all that stuff. And then my earliest memories would have been the likes of the Carpenters, Elton John, that kind of thing. And I used to sing along to him in the back of my mum's Fiat 127 on way to Markham, <laughs> singing, singing all Elton John songs and Carpenters songs. And that was my, my early recollections, really. When did you think you might like to become a musician? Well, do you play out? Yeah, yeah I've been. In, yeah, yeah, play guitar and bass no. and sing. And and do you work as well? I work as well at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, does the fact that you have a different job stop you being a musician? I think it was because I failed at one. I had to work. The dream didn't come true. <laughs> yeah, but that that's, that doesn't mean you're not a musician. If you're a musician, you're a musician. Yes. Just, yes. You know, there's a lot of people who are in the charts who are so far from musicians and songwriters. It's ridiculous. You know what yeah. I mean? It's it's, it's a different. If it's a different thing that you know, if you play an instrument, you're a musician. If you like sitting down and drawing or painting or making stuff, you're an artist. You don't have to go to university to get a degree to tell you you're an artist. Mm. Do you know? So um, when I was very young, my mum said to me because I didn't do right well at school. <laughs> at all and I'll probably be I don't know maybe even before my 10th birthday because I, I would just I'm just not academic so uh, I just didn't get it so my mum said what are you going to be when you grow up and I said don't worry I'll be famous then <laughs> <laughs> back in them days it wasn't something you said because it wasn't like the x-factor culture that we have now where you know it's like all I've ever wanted to do is is sing and it's like well who stopped you <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean is all I've ever wanted to do is be famous and start at the top playing stadiums I don't want to do clubs <laughs> you know so I was probably 10 when I said that to my mum maybe a bit younger but then my mum had bought this um organ a kaiwai a kawai um organ mm. I think it was quite expensive and you'll know as a parent the best way to justify buying yourself something is to say you're doing it for kids. It's why you see all the, the guys pushing prams into train set shops and <laughs> dragging toddlers in to buy the latest drone, you know what I mean, from yeah, model yeah, yeah. shop. So me and my sister would have to learn this organ because that's why we were going to get it. My mum played. And I didn't want to play organ, but um, I had to go for these lessons. My sister didn't. She was old. She managed to get out of it. And my teacher, Mr. Osborne, he quite early on found out I was not a keyboard player. And in, I don't know, within a year, I could do my scales, you know, one scale on each hand, C, with, with roll over with your thumb. But at the end of every lesson, if you'd done well, there was lollies on top of organ and you could have one. Um, and eventually, I'd just go play my scales, sit down with lolly in this wing-back chair, I remember it, and listen to jazz played by Mr. Osborne for 20 minutes. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I didn't actually do the lesson. I just did the scale showing that. And I liked it. 
So well, I'd sit there with lollipop. It was probably in a wing-back chair. I suppose it was like, it should have been a Havana cigar in a the 100 Club or something in a wing-back chair there, but it was my version of it. When I got found out, I was sat in the back of the car crying because I'd been found out, being told, that's it, you're not going back, you know. And it was, and I said, I really want to play guitar. And I'd had my chance and I'd blown it, as the phrase goes. And it's like, because I was told I wasn't allowed a guitar, when I was 16, it was the first thing I bought on my first wage. I bought two, so that desperate. 12 quid each. And the not being allowed to do something made me really, really want to do it. So I suppose that were it. So I learned, I paid for 10 classical lessons and bought two classical guitars when I was 16. So yeah, and that were it. And then um, I've always liked singing. Like, do you remember a song called um, Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap? Yes, yes, yeah. So that was a, a hit by middle of the road when I was, I don't know, probably 1974, so I'll have been six. And I was um, at the Floral Hall with my mum and my sister and my mum's auntie Elaine playing bingo. And when the break came, I went to go to the toilet. My sister had to come with me. So we walked past the stage instead of walking past it. I walked up onto the stage and the, uh, there were a microphone there and my sister came with me and we sang that song and then <laughs> came off the stage, got half a packet of merrymints and a few pennies, went to Lou and went back and my mum says, what's that all about? So I always liked singing. And then when I was like 15 and that, I was singing in with my mates, you know what I mean? We'd just go to the park and sing. It was weird, like some people do graffiti. We'd just sing songs that we knew. And then my mate says, look, there's an audition for a band in Bradford. So it said 18 plus, but uh, I ended up on a bus to a place called Eldwick and uh, went and sang Wishing Well by Free to this bunch of 20 odd year olds. And they let me in the band, yeah. And that was it. So so I sang for this band and we did like gigs in pubs that I probably shouldn't have been in. And then when I was... 18 or something that had all filtered away because their kids and work and family and all that kind of thing meant that we weren't rehearsing as much and we weren't gigging as much so that sort of ended and then I saw a band called Masquerade playing and I just thought they were cool I thought the songs were cool they were rock and roll and then I saw the guitarist out in town and I said oh, I think the band's well cool um, when are you playing again and he said oh we're looking for a new singer which at the time I actually thought they could do with a better singer. <laughs> um, and I said, oh, I'll do it. And he went, no, you're all right. So I was like, oh, all right, fair dues. But then a few weeks later, he, were DJing, he used to DJ at the Wheat Sheaf Pub, which is where I did my first gig and with the other band. And then he went, um, oh, would you mind DJing for us? Because I want to go see Zodiac Mindwarp. So I said, no, that's fine. So he went to see Zodiac Mindwarp and I played things like Faster Pussycat and The Cult and Poison at this rock club and because that was what was in at the time, mm. what we liked. And then I went, he said, right, learn this song, Teenage Kicks, right on the tone, which was good. So I went to shut his house where I was going to audition uh, and Lee sang the song. I sat on a, a table, tennis table that had been had this legs cut off so I could use it as a drum riser. <laughs> and that's how I ended up in what became television, 
but were spoiled brats at the time. From there, it kind of, well, I say you worked so hard because even throughout sort of the, the early period of the band of the 90s, you, you put out so many albums. I mean, four albums uh, within a, a, a two or three years, wasn't it, at least? Or Was it? Oh, something like that. I know, I know we liked touring and I know we worked hard at that. So I, what, when did um, Formality Ad come out? Like 92 and then about 94 that regular Urban Survivor, sorry, out Mac Friends came out, then 95. Yeah, probably somewhat, somewhat around there, three or four albums. In, yeah, within the right. space of two or three years, you had Formaldehyde, How to Make Friends, and then uh, Regular Urban Survivors, and then uh, Shaving Peaches. But yeah, two year or a year in between each each release. It's pretty yeah. good going. Yeah, and the touring and everything. Cause yeah. we, we always toured, even before we had a record deal, we'd just go and play absolutely anywhere to anybody. We'd roll up at home just like brush your teeth and go to work you know what i mean it was but it's it's what you do you either do it or you don't simple as that and and luckily i was in a band where everyone had the same drive and Mm -hmm. same attitude towards it did you guys have like a a plan did you sit down and think you know this is where you wanted to be at a certain point in time and and did you organize yourselves (laughs) no 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 our plan was just to enjoy it and be in a band and write songs and see if we could play it to people that would get them and like them. And that was our plan. And then we obviously we'd send out demos to record companies and stuff, but that was just going through the motions. And then we got a call off of a, it was, what was it called? Called Sunshine, some or other. This tape we'd sent out. And Shutter used to, we used to put his number on and he used to answer his phone in a London accent. So he could pretend he was this guy called Dave Scott, who was Television's manager. <laughs> um, I spoke Brat's manager. So even if it were his dad, he'd go, all right, Dave Scott speaking. And his dad would go, <laughs> and he'd go, all right, Dad, how are you doing? <laughs> and, um, then he got a call off this guy called Al Rose. You know, Peaceville Records. Uh, I don't recognise the name, actually, no. So Peaceville were like um, Paradise Lost. I think we're on Peaceville and uh, Anathema, not Anathema, um, Anast- not Anastasia. What's that word for if you forget? Uh, amnesia. Them, they were on it. <laughs> <laughs> I really, that's genuine. I couldn't remember what they were called. <laughs> How bad's that? Um, so they were on it, and so this little split-off shoot of Peaceville, which were ahead of its time for that kind of music, really, and it were in Dewsbury and Batley, which is the dark satanic mills, which you can understand where it came from. There, mm. um, it's uh, like you think the weather's bad where you are now. If you went to Batley, you'd, you'd be having a t-shirt on where you live. <laughs> it's like it's um it's it's just it's proper working old Yorkshire working place. So this we he got a call anyway from the offshoot of Peaceville. We have a, a guy called Al Rhodes who was it started an offshoot called Major Records, and um, he rang Shutty's house and Shutty answered. Us, all right, Dave Scott here, and he says, "All right, it's Al Rhodes from Major Records. You sent the tape to Peaceville, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah.'" Like that. And he went, don't ever, ever send me or this record company any of this crap again. Do you know what I mean? It's horrendous. <laughs> the worst thing I've ever heard. And shortly like, all right, mate. All right, fair dues. And uh, passed it all on and we're like, what a wanker. And then about within the month, he rang back and he went, I'm really sorry about what I said. I can't stop listening to it. <laughs> um, so I'd like to um, offer you a five record 
five album record deal. Just before this, actually, one tape, another record company um, called, it wasn't Music for Nations, but it was like on Revolvers. Anyway, we're a record, a little label down in Midlands. They offered us a deal and I had to drive down to meet this guy um, who offered us a deal. He said he was going to give us £30,000 to record our first album, which we could record in this like outbuilding he had. Which mm. sort of, I just thought, hang on a minute, you're not giving us thirty thousand pounds. You're just charging us thirty grand to record something in your garage. So I told the rest of us, and we turned it down. And then when Al came back, he says, he says, um, so he offered us this five album deal. So he says, well, let's meet. Uh, and he didn't drive, so we met in the interchange, the bus exchange in Bradford, at a bar called the Birdcage, which was like up these steps you look down onto the like where you came into bus station. And he came in and he had this contract and everything. And obviously he was schmoozing us. So we were buying drinks all night. And we all got very merry. And then at the end he said, so what do you think? And we went, we think five albums is too much. So he went, oh, right. So he went away, made another meeting. We met at the Birdcage Bar. He bought us loads of drink, offered us a four-album deal. And that night we realised if we kept saying no, he'd keep making us and buying us pints. <laughs> and I think it was when we got down to a 12-inch EP, he just went, I'm not going to make any money out of discovering a band that's then going to just get taken by a big label. Or, yeah. you know. So if I pack my job in at the label, can I manage you? Um, and he became our first manager and he got us our first record deal with um, EMI Records. And when EMI said to us, I remember sitting at this big long table back in the days when you could smoke inside because I had a little bit of my cigarette, a little table and it would light pine and it burnt it. The guy in the EMI was sat at this table and he rings upstairs to like, he's doing the negotiations, the guy upstairs. And he says, so, right, what um, what would you like? Is there anything that you, you want to put into this deal? And at the time, EMI's rock roster was everything that we railed against, really. It was a bit plagiaristic, a bit old hat, mm. was a bit safe, you know, so we just went, yeah, we don't want to be on EMI <laughs> and he <laughs> says what do you mean? And I went, we want his own label, and he says, what's it called? And we used to say if someone were good it was Vegas, and if it was really, really good we used to say it's totally Vegas and uh, he just went um, it's total Vegas recordings like that, and they just, he rang upstairs and then he went, yeah, that's fine and so that's why all the stuff came out on Total Vegas Recordings, which allowed us to have like independent press people, but the funding to do it. You did well in terms of uh, critical uh, accolades as well, because you um, Kerrang Awards and, and and Brit Awards. And yeah, we uh, never got a Brit. We got invited, and I gave me invitation away because they never liked us. Sorry, I read so, that wrong. Yeah, no. We, we, <laughs> We got invited to Brits and everyone was like, it's a really big thing to go to the Brits. And uh, I gave my ticket to someone's mate because they were like mad about that kind of thing. And I just thought, they don't like us, you know, the the enemy and, and Kerrang didn't like us at start. You know, the first review we had in Kerrang was by a guy called Chris Watts and he would be cancelled now for the word he used on us. But he hated us so much, it was ridiculous. But I think it was because we were a live band mm. that we connected with people in live venues and people understood that we were what came out of us wasn't for the magazines and the journalists. It was for people who were like us 
you know, and it, it worked because when it started to take off, people liked us because if four lads from Bradford in the face of all the American bands that are coming over can get on the cover of Kerrang! due to the fact that so many people are going to the gigs now, then they're selling so many records, then anyone can, you know mm. what I mean? Mm. And um, I'm proud of that. I'm saying, yeah, mm. Kerrang! eventually had to lie, because of course there were some journalists that did. It was just they were never the ones that reviewed it. <laughs> yeah. No, they did. They did. But, you know, I rem you remember the bad things more than the good things, don't you? Because they hurt more. Yeah. I mean, when you got uh, those good reviews in the sort of the music press and things, did it offset that kind of um, that negativity then from some of those publishers? Well, I think maybe there will have been, Maybe it was just the wrong journalist came to the wrong gig at the wrong time for some of it. Mm. You know, and I can understand why people won't get television. I completely understand why people would think we were horrendous. Do you know what I mean? Because we're not doing what people expected. You know, it's um, record labels. The reason why we didn't, you know, the EMI thing, record labels turned down bands like the Beatles, right? Turned down bands like Zeppelin. And then when they started being massive, went and tried to find anyone who sounded remotely like the Beatles or Led Zeppelin, so they're too lazy to go and find the next Led Zeppelin. They don't understand would sound prodigy with the next Led Zeppelin. Yeah. They don't sound like Led Zeppelin. They, they had that, and they still have that artistic integrity to create their own stuff. And EMI bands, when we signed, could do really good versions of songs you'd heard before with a few different lyrics in, it didn't really speak to me, do you know what I mean? Shadows of Love and Castles of Tomorrow don't speak to me. I'm quite uh, blunt and, like, most people have to go to work every day could probably identify with, with yeah, what yeah. I sing about rather than driving fast cars and, and all that crap. So, yeah, it was, you know, we, we, I don't know where any of the Karang Awards are. None of us do. We lost them all. I remember the last one we got, I dropped off way to the car and it smashed. Yeah, I suppose if it had been that important the fans were more important than the accolades obviously because we would have bought some glue and tried to make it better yeah 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 Stark fell asleep after won awards fell asleep in the he managed to get to Trafalgar Square and he fell asleep on the bench and when he woke up someone had nicked his award out of his arms and his bottle that he was drinking which is why he fell asleep but um, and I think he got handed in, you know that. I think he got handed into police, and I think our press officer might have that one from back in the nineties. I think they kept it because there was no point letting us have it. So this um, this ethos that you had of just you know in terms of the, the songwriting and and the subject matter of your of your music is obviously that's what's helped in terms of longevity and and uh, you know. Where you're from, the, the connections to you know home and 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 singing and talking about things that are, are real for people, I think was a, a a real big selling point for the band and and really what set you apart from, as you say, other bands out there that were doing something a little bit darker. But maybe I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I I really like lyrics; they're really important. And you know, the the like indie press thought we were a laugh and a joke and a crate of ale because we weren't staring at our shoes and looking depressed when we sang something that was quite um, quite tormenting at times. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. pretend best friend isn't a, you know, there's a doo-wop in oblivion, but if you listen to it words, I, you know, it's it's not a doo-wop 
Bopadu, what kind of sentiment to the lyrics. It's just the, the, the like I say, the thought of a laugh and a joke and a creative ale. But mm. um, they are important. And I think some people got that and some people didn't. And those that didn't, they're lost. And I actually got my first studio day booked in a couple of weeks to go in and start recording my third album, third solo album. So that, that'll be um, next month, I suppose, if this first session goes well. Next yeah. month, that should be recorded. And then hopefully I'll be out on tour. I'm booked in to do a tour with Ferocious Dog, Spartan Ferocious Dog, in um, October, November, I do believe. So hopefully that can all go ahead and I'll have my albums ready for that. Obviously, the writing process is very different for you, but you drawing on the same sort of uh, material and, and influences with that with that writing. Yeah, I, I've always written the same way. You know, I don't write every um, television lyric. Sometimes I'll throw some music parts in there. Television are a band, so hmm. that's a, a different process to writing um, because it's to get the best song for people working in the same direction can get. Um, so when I'm on my own, I have no one to bounce off. So I can take longer, I suppose. So mm. I probably text longer because I'm not bouncing it around with other people. But then it's a very different kind of music. Yeah. Is it, will you be touring on your own or will you be with a band? I'll just tour with Millie like um, I've always done, really. Yeah. I just love it. I, you know, it's like going back to that. You're either a musician or you're not. Mm. You, you know, you can be sitting behind a counter giving someone the change that doesn't stop you being a musician if you mm. play an instrument so yeah I, I get in a car with Millie we chuck his guitars in a, a suitcase full of merchandise and we go on little tours and like just enjoy it I mean it's it's a lot cheaper than having to tour, hire tour buses and um, mm. stuff like that obviously don't get paid like you do when you play on television but it's um yeah, it's it's actually quite keeps your feet on in the ground, really, um, and it's 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 a, it's a lovely thing to do, just tour and play acoustically, because mm. you have not nothing to hide behind, no one else to hide behind, and it's it's a pleasure to do. So he's playing in television, but it's a different kind of pleasure. <laughs> television have been like playing on and off doing. Uh, festivals and short tours for quite a few years now. Um, mm. We've had a lot of stuff cancelled in this this pandemic and stuff that didn't get booked back in again. So television at the moment, we're writing tunes, we're just writing together, which is great because we we haven't done that for ten years, and it's it's great because it's it's um, you hear television, but television maybe. We're, We've done them songs, so we can't do them again. So what can we do? Mm. So it's uh, it's good. It's it's great with a, with an intention. If we get enough decent songs, we'll make an album. We don't have to make an album. There's no one saying to us, if you don't give us an album, we're going to stop paying you because mm. no one's paying us. You know what I mean? We're completely yeah. independent. So, yeah, things take a little bit longer because of that. But there's no harm in that. We've all got other stuff to do. I've got my little... Other interests. I've got my little print studio and my little recording studio and my little coffee shop, all in this one place. But it's uh, yeah, I do that. Sark's a tattooist in Shipley when he when he's allowed to be open. Cam teaches drums. Lee's working. You know, it's it, we just you got. Do you know if you don't live 
real life. Real life is inspiring. When we've been on tour for what felt like forever without the felt like you don't have the brakes, you just feel like you spend 10 years on a bus with the same dozen people leaving the bus to go into a sports hall or a, a theatre, not really being able allowed to go out too much because you, if you go to the nearest pub, you can't chat with the person you went with because someone will come over and, and tap you on the shoulder. Uh, and because I'm from Bradford, I'm really polite, so you don't ignore them. Yeah. So it's um, it's like there's nothing to really inspire you. You know what I mean? It's like I'm seeing sports hall of the same people on the insides of buses. And yeah, I'm going to foreign countries, but I'm not sucking it all in like I would do if um, maybe I'd had to pay to get there and, you know, I'd only got a fortnight off from my, my job in factory, you know. Well, hopefully, uh, Tony, I'll be able to get to see you at some point playing live when you're touring. And, and if you manage to come down to Southampton, I'll get some. I think I will be with Ferocious Dog. We'll be somewhere down there. Brilliant. Thanks so much for speaking to me for the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Cheers, take Chris. Care. Take care. There are. Thanks again to Tony for joining me on the podcast. It was fantastic to speak to you about Terravision. If you have time, uh, write a review and leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. You can follow me on social media. Just search for Back to Britpop on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You can find me there and you can buy me a virtual coffee on my Ko-Fi page, which is in the show notes. Thanks again. See you on the next podcast. Mm-hmm.